Today, we're in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12, as you can see. And my sermon is something that's important because it's really applied throughout church history. And that is the tendency of people to divide, to have schisms, to make things important that aren't important, and to um, really even take things important like Christ and Paul and the apostles and divide based on what they think would be a good division. But we're going to see what the ground of true fellowship is. So let me read the text from the Lexham English Bible, and then we'll get into the rest of the sermon. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all say the same thing, and there not be divisions among you, and that you be made complete in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been made clear to me concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. But I say this, that each of you is saying, I'm with Paul, and I'm with Apollos, and I'm with Cephas, and I'm with Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us inspired scripture, this inerrant, authoritative, binding, and ever changes. Help us understand what you've said and give us faith to believe what you've said and grace to obey what you've said. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at the first part of verse 10. I exhort you, my brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all say the same thing and there not be divisions among you. Now, the word exhort, the first word I have highlighted there, exhort, parakaleo, is a word that has a significant range of meanings. It could mean urge, appeal, comfort, encourage. And so in this context, a decision needs to be made. Uh, Here I think it denotes strongly appeal, strongly appeal. This is important. Parakaleo means to call alongside. I strongly appeal to you, Paul said, that um, you get on the same page, if I may just use a modern term. How is that going to happen? We'll talk about that today. So he's exhorting the brethren there, which, by the way, is generic, means males and females who believe in Christ. And he does so by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The name in the biblical sense, uh, means the person, work, character, promises. It's not just a secret word, you say, but it's the very being of Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the virgin-born, sinless Savior, the one who died for sins, the one who rose on the third day, the one who sits at the right hand of God. Everything that's true about Christ, Paul says, by that name, that person, the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's a purpose clause, Hina, that you say the same thing. But it doesn't mean everybody just memorizes a script and says it back. That's not the point. And we'll see that. What it means is 
get on the same page, as I said earlier, or take the same side. Someone translated it. Because frankly, I'll just include some of our own uh, exhortation and understanding here. Throughout church history, there's always been attacks against the gospel. There's always been attacks against Christ and the authority of Scripture and the Word of God. And when the church starts dividing up and attacking each other over things that aren't important, well, now we've got the world attacking us and we've got Christians attacking us. That's pretty hard to deal with. And I've been a Christian as of July. It'll be 50 years. And I've had plenty of things I've believed wrong, had to get corrected, said wrong, had to repent, done wrong, had to get straightened out. But in the end, we, we need to find out how can we have the unity of the faith? Remember Ephesians said, till we all arrive at the unity of the faith? How's that going to happen? And we'll see that as we go through Corinthians. And so I'm going to make a statement here. The rest of the verse in the larger context show that he does not mean say the same words, but being unified in the truth of the gospel and not divided or torn apart. Unified in the truth of the gospel. I just published an article that critiques a book called The Creedal Imperative. And in church history, the solution to schisms has historically been church hierarchy making decrees and saying, you do what we say, then we'll have unity. Or write down something, we got it straight now, here, here it is, just say this and nothing else, and show up in the service and repeat after me. Well, if you do that, you're certainly, certainly seeing the same thing. But you might not know Christ. You might have no interest in the gospel. You might not even believe that the Bible means what it says. And you might not even believe the things in the creed. And so we, I published an article about that, and I'm open to any comments on that. But ultimately, I'm going to claim that the unity of the faith comes through the basic authority of Scripture and the solas, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I believe those are biblical. And we need to have some baseline where we can have Christian unity. We need to know what's binding and what isn't. What's authoritative and what's merely my personal preference. And so that is what I'm going to do here as I try to lay that out in some applications. Now, these divisions and tears, literally tears, are not God's will. Paul is not choosing sides here, but rejecting their scheme of various types of Christians. He's not choosing sides. He's rejecting their whole scheme of various types of Christians. And there are a lot of ways such schemes have been unleashed in church history. I've written about a lot of them. Pietism, uh, various false doctrines, higher order Christians, special Christians, enlightened Christians, so on and so forth. 
as we go through First Corinthians, we'll deal with this. A lot of things have happened because people take Paul's ironic statements literally. What happens when you take irony literally? You get the opposite of what's meant. Right? It's like a few years ago when gas was $4.25 and you tried to fill up your vehicle and it would shut you off because it already got to too much money and they only allow you to spend so much. Anybody remember that? And you come home exasperated and say, well, I'm sure glad gas is cheap now. What are you doing? You're, you're ironic. Because the reality is it's not cheap. It won't even let me fill my tank and it shuts me off. So when there's irony, we need to know that. And there may be some irony in this. In fact, I think there is. One more statement. One scholar, scholar rightly said that the splits may have been political, but the cure was Christological. Okay. Politics, church politics, no politics will ever cure splits in the church. Knowing Christ, who he is, what he said, what he's revealed, and our status in Christ will give unity. Politics never yields unity. So I think that's a good point that someone made. Let's go to the last part of this verse. And that you be made complete in the same mind with the same purpose. Now, made complete, and I have this on my slide here, literally means being mended. The word used in another context would be used for mending nets. And I think it's used that way in the gospel, sort of fishermen, mending nets. Why? You wanted them to work properly. In Minnesota here, this is the fishing opener. And so that there are people in church shows a lot of dedication. Because in Minnesota, fishing opener is like a big holiday. I say that ironically. Um, the fact is that a net with a big hole in it doesn't work very good when you try to land your fish. Because the fish will find the hole every time. So here, this made complete means put in the proper condition. And that's God's will. This applies to the church. And therefore, that needs to be what we consider. And how will God do that? And what is God's will to make the church in the proper condition? Now, as I have on the slide here, Paul urges three things using in the Greek the word same three times. The first time was in the previous part of the verse. He uses the word same three times. Okay? That you, number one, say the same thing or be on the same side. Number two, that you be of the same mind. And number three, that you have the same purpose. So, say the same thing, be of the same mind, and have the same pur purpose. The word for mind here, noose, has a broad range of meaning, but here in this context, it means mindset, and purpose in this context means conviction. So we have the same mindset and the same conviction. 
That doesn't mean there isn't any diversity in the church. Paul will address that later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about different gifts and so on. But when it comes to the gospel and the work of Christ and the biblical definition of the church, we need the same idea. Why are we here? What is this about? And we need to understand what's the truth? What makes us one in Christ? And what's our purpose? Or conviction? I have a statement here about this. The word translated opinion is translated opinion. See our word there for conviction. Same word in Greek is used later, 1 Corinthians, for opinion, where it simply means opinion. So you have to look at the context. There's a range of meaning. Here it means conviction. The context is different there. And so this is possible because of God's work of grace that saved us and the means of grace that sanctify us. The only way we'll have unity is by the gospel, regeneration, and how God changes us through his word, his ordained means of grace. Hierarchical authority structures don't do this. The only thing you can unify with just brute force is some group or organization that's not really a church anyhow. The unity of the faith comes through the work of grace and through the gospel, not through power structures devised by human beings. Let's go to verse 11. Now, Paul heard about the fact that there was there were these schisms by a means, and it's mentioned here, 1 Corinthians 1.11. For it has been made clear to me concerning you, my brothers. Now, let me stop right there. Notice it says, my brothers, brethren, which means brothers and sisters. He's not claiming that they're not Christian. But they're, that they're getting the wrong idea. He assumes, now there may be some who really don't know Christ, but he addresses them as brothers and sisters in Christ. He does it twice here. It's very important. Remember I mentioned that he spent a year and a half in Corinth personally teaching, preaching, discipling. So they, he knew that people had actually come to Christ and been taught the truth about Christ and the gospel. So he's not saying you're not Christian. So he calls them brothers. So I want to make that point. But he, he said, it made clear to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. We're not sure who Chloe is, but Paul considered this report to be reliable. And likely, this is just likely, Chloe was someone known to Paul, known to the Corinthians, probably someone who was a businesswoman based either in Ephesus or Corinth, whose emissaries traveled for her on business and were trusted by Paul. Someone made that point, Dr. Gardner. That's all we know, and that's just not certain. But if we read Acts, we see that's very reasonable. 
Uh, Lydia was important. Lydia, remember, of Thessalonica, Thyatira, and her household. God used many different people. And anyhow, Paul trusted the report that came from Chloe's people, business associates, or whatever they were. So he believed it was true. He considered it reliable. The word quarrels here could be translated conflicts, discords, or strife. Aris is the Greek, and it can mean wrangling, contention. And the same word, if you want to turn to it, Titus 3.9. If you want to turn to Titus 3.9, the same word in the Greek for quarrels is used in Titus 3.9. I'll read it, Titus 3.9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife, there's our word, eras, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And so there's the word strife. And in this case, evidently, in Titus, they're trying to figure things out they had nothing to do with the gospel. Disputes about the law, disputes about genealogy, who descended from whom, that's not important. And why? Because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two: in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. If you're in Adam, it doesn't matter what nation you're from, what your pedigree is, how smart you are, how uh, influential you are, how literate you are, how much rhetorical skill you have, you're dead. Now, if you're in Christ, by faith, you're alive. Spiritually, and you have the gift of eternal life. And so there are many ways for genealogies, controversies, strife, disputes to afflict people, but we've got to get back to Christ alone. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 1.12, which says this, and I'm citing the New American Standard because it just left the genitives in the Greek as they are, as we see here. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, which, by the way, is Peter, and I am of Christ. Now, a lot's been written about this, but the interesting thing is, we're not even sure that these groups actually existed. It may all be irony. Surely, somebody who's a Christian is not going to say, well, I'm in this little Christ group. You're in some other group. That's probably irony. And we know from the rest of Corinthians that Paul didn't actually have a different doctrine in Apollos. And I can show you that. And that Peter and Paul, by this time, were on the same page. This is in Galatians. And that that's not even right. It doesn't even make sense. There's no evidence that Peter had been there. But it, but. Honestly, we need to understand that the gospel comes from one source, Christ, 
and his ordained apostles. And there's always going to be debates and discussions. There's always going to be things that will trouble the saints. And I'll talk about this in my applications. And I have to admit that in my own life, what drove me to Scripture alone was the fact that people, including me, had been tossed to and fro by grandiose claims, people claiming to have a new revelation, a new way of solving everybody's problems, a new way of being a better Christian than ordinary Christians. And then it changed, and then something else would come, and then it would change, then something else would come. And finally, enough, I had to get out. No. How can we ever have the unity of the faith? Why don't we just teach the Bible? Does that mean there'll never be a discussion? No, there'll be lots of them. But at least we have a source that we can go back to to find out what's true. Because God's word never change, changes. And we can understand it. And so scripture alone, frankly, was what Luther went to when it was so obvious that Rome wasn't really the church. We got to have a way back. Now, here's a preview. In fact, I'll cite this if you want to turn to it. Let me give you a preview of something a little later here in 1 Corinthians. And it's 1 Corinthians 3, 3 through 6. And this shows that in actuality, these are people that are teaching the same gospel. And the Corinthians were really confused, okay? 1 Corinthians 3, 3 through 6. This is a preview. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, there's that statement again, and another, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men? In other words, you're thinking like somebody who never knew Christ. You're acting like the world. It's not right. It's ironic. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? Apollos. And what is Paul? He answers his own rhetorical question. Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Verse 6. 1 Corinthians 3. I planted. Apollos watered. God was causing growth. Paul and Apollos weren't on different pages. Paul and Apollos and Peter, they weren't on different pages. Peter probably had never been there. Certainly they're all those who are leading people to Christ. So it doesn't make sense. But that's the problem. Now let me uh, make a statement about this. There's a string of genitives, genitive in in the Greek, it creates a context. You have to decide what sort of genitive, objective, subjective, plenary. But the context reigns supreme. Here, it's hard to tell. So the New American Standard just translates it into English as it is in the Greek. I am of Paul. So back to my statement. A string of genitives of Paul, of Apollos, of Cephas, creates ambiguity. And... <clears throat> The New American Standard just keeps it as it is. 
and then we can look at what the possibilities are. Now, if you have a different translation, maybe you have the ESV, it says, I follow Paul. Others say, I am with Paul. Others say, I belong to Paul. That's possible interpretations. I just left it, and we can decide. But really, it doesn't matter, because they're wrong. Okay? They're wrong, however you translate it. And um, Paul obviously didn't start his own sect in Corinth. And later he said, in fact, uh, I believe in 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, be imitators of me. He didn't say that because he wanted to start, start a sect different from that of Apollos and that of Jesus and that of Peter, but because he was appointed by Christ, he was an apostle, and he was following Christ, and so was everybody else. The Corinthians were confused and creating divisions that had no validity in the church. Now, I'm going to make a statement about this based on um, a lot of study of Corinthians over the years, and then we'll see if this bears out as we go forward. This is my statement. What is likely is that there were claims of superior wisdom, spirituality, and piety behind these slogans. That's what they are, slogans. They had boundaries within the church, whereas the real boundary should be between the church and the world. Continuing the statement that I wrote here in my notes, Paul does not tell us the distinctive beliefs and practices of each group, so we have no need to speculate. We'll just keep learning as we go forward. There's probably irony. Obviously, Christ didn't start a sect. I'm of Christ. So we've got more to learn. Next week, uh, I'll be preaching again, and the issue of baptism comes up. And Paul is going to say, well, I'm glad I didn't baptize most of you. Well, then, what does that mean? So come back next week, and we'll look at some of that. The point is, people will think of any way to create a division. And really, I think what's behind it, this is my uh, informed opinion, based on a lot of experience, a lot of study of Scripture, when people just want to find some way to convince themselves they're better Christians than everybody else. I think that's what's behind it. And we know that's behind a lot of what happens in Corinth. They were literally later telling Paul he wasn't spiritual enough for them. They had these pneumaticas, the spiritual ones, and they looked at Paul and said, no, you're too carnal. What? So just get this stuff working and read ahead, study. Are we able to tell who's better than whom in the church based on our idea about what's good. No, I've already gave you an, uh, an application earlier in a sermon. Don't go on passing judgment before the time. We don't even know. And the only way we can hope that at the final judgment, we know that we're right with God if we trust in Christ alone, as far as Rewards in the eternal kingdom, God's, that's God's business. It's not our, we don't know. Be faithful to Christ 
and I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So let's look at the implications and applications that I think are important here. If there is going to be unity, we must know and be committed to the faith as revealed in Scripture alone. The faith. The doctrinal content of revealed truth that's in the Bible. Secondly, compelling personalities with eccentric and unbiblical teachings create schisms and not unity. Now, anyone with a TV knows that's true. Okay? And now, with the broadcast system and the ability to communicate visually, verbally, and every other way, it's really true. And the magnetic personality, literally, who has uh, the ability to command an audience and articulate things and portray themselves as pious, wise, powerful, great, wonderful. Oh, let's follow that. But that's not the point. The point is, what has God said? How do we find salvation? How do we faithfully and graciously serve God and serve one another? Throughout this series on 1 Corinthians, we're going to be pleading for that. We need to graciously serve one another. By love, serve one another. And don't start making comparisons. We shouldn't do that. On the other hand, false doctrines promoted by compelling personalities can create temporary unity of some kind of an organization, but it doesn't do any good for anything eternal. So let's look at some uh, groundwork for finding unity. Jude, well, it's actually Jude 1 verse 3, but since there's only one chapter, most commentaries and Bible programs and stuff just call this Jude 3. Jude verse 3. So let's read that from the New American Standard Bible. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith. The faith, as I put on the slide here, is the objective doctrine that was given by Christ and his apostles. The faith. Now, I studied Greek when I was in Bible college, and I had teachers who urged us to stay in the Scripture, learn the Greek, which is not obligatory, but I did, and then, you know, stay in the scriptures because there's so many things they had seen happen. And to my shame, I thought I needed to have better experiences and I was young and I don't know, there's no excuse, but I joined a group that claimed to have greater piety than ordinary Christians. And in our experiences, some of you were there with us, um, people had come to Christ from denominational settings. And there were people that were Catholics, 
would come to Christ, Lutherans, Presbyterians, all different kinds, Methodists, came to Christ. And some people whose denominations had sound doctrine in their creedal statements seemed to be dead. That's what we heard. Well, it turned out that the doctrine wasn't what killed them. It was unbelief. And when they came to believe the true doctrine, they were born of God. And praise God, the joy of the Holy Spirit. God is at work. God is changing us. True. But some erroneously thought what killed them was the true doctrine. And what made them alive was experience. Signs and wonders. Powerful men of God coming through town telling us the latest revelation. And so I had five years of that. And then the one move comes through town, fizzles out. Another one comes through town, fizzles out. No, that wasn't it. Now this is the latest move of God. Now this is the latest move of God. And finally, in the early 80s, and I've told this story many times, a couple of us, our senior pastor, and I was a associate pastor, we decided, what are we going to do because people are being harmed? People who should have, who were elderly and on their deathbed, were in, in trembling with fear. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And uh, the pastor and I visited people and said, you didn't do anything wrong. You've, you've served Christ. Yes, you, your sins are forgiven. It's not that you are worse than some other Christian who never dies. But the false doctrine had given them no assurance. And it wasn't just the group I was in. Uh, let me bear my heart about this. When I was in Bible college, Reverend William Snow was one of our teachers, and he'd been a military chaplain for 20 years. And he was full of wisdom, and I thank God that I had him. And he said to uh, the, the evangelical Pentecostal group I was in, as he taught us pastors, how come when I go to funerals of our people, people in our denomination, there's wailing and sorrow and no joy? Uh, whatever happened? Why is there so much sorrow and hopelessness at all these funerals? And you know what he told us? Because preachers have been dangling them over the pit their whole lives. Preachers have been saying, you're not good enough. You didn't do it right. You didn't, you're not what you should be. You didn't give enough money. You didn't come to enough meetings. You didn't come to the Sunday night service. And then the funeral comes, and even the relatives have no hope. And Reverend Snow said, that's not right. God bless him. I know he's in heaven now. I thank God. Uh, um, the faith. After I decided that we need to get back to something solid, and that we can't have people who are elderly, who love Jesus, thinking they did something wrong, when they're in the hospital, breathing their last breaths. How can that change? We better get back to the faith once for all handed down to the saints. So I, I got my Greek back out, started relearning it. I remember contacting Reverend Snow, who was still alive, and other teachers I had. I said, well, what's it mean when the faith 
pistos in the Greek has a definite article. And they said, well, it means the content of the doctrine, the faith. I said, I thought so. And so we decided it was actually okay to teach doctrine. Imagine that. After five years of being told doctrine will kill you, but the Holy Spirit will give you great power and joy. But the fact is the Holy Spirit comes to us, as Luther said, through the word. And that's biblical. Jesus said, it's to your benefit that I go, because when I go, I will send another comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't in conflict with the faith once for all handed down to the saints. So the faith is objective doctrine, which was once for all, hapax in the Greek, which means once and never again, to the saints, meaning Christians. This revealed truth, as I say on the slide here, does not change over time. It's always binding on all Christians. In that article we just published, I, I raised a question. So you have your creed, and you have your creed, and you have your creed, and they disagree with each other. So is binding and loosing parochial, or is it for all Christians? Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth shall having been bound in heaven. What's binding is the word of God revealed once for all. And there's websites saying, well, our group calls this binding. Well, that's fine, but is it? If it's biblical, it's binding. If it's binding, it's binding on all who believe in Jesus. And if it's not biblical, it's not binding on anybody. So how come you have this binding, that binding, this binding, but we can't ever hope to know and, and believe and be grounded in the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Why is that impossible? We won't have all of it until we see Jesus. But that's where we're going in Ephesians. Then we all come to the unity of the faith. It happens. That's where we're going. So we got to get back to Scripture alone. Now, contend, contend earnestly. And there's a prefix, there's this word agonizomai, which we can hear uh, echo of our word agony or agonize. And then with a prefix, and it means literally, agonizomai, to strive, to contend earnestly, fight for in reference to something. In this case, the faith. There is a battle. I'm not a pacifist when it comes to the faith. And frankly, when we started writing and doing seminars and teaching about correcting error, we were told that we're dividing the body of Christ. But what's the implication of that? That if anybody corrects error, they divide the body of Christ. But if anybody promotes error, then maybe the Holy Spirit's working. Now, if I try to promote was not revealed by Scripture, then I'm dividing the body of Christ. If I say something is taught by Scripture, but it's not, I have to believe in the priesthood of every believer and let, well, let's open the Scripture and look and see what it says. Can we learn? I've been wrong, and I thank God for someone to correct me. But when you say, no, 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 you can't do that. I'm the apostle, I'm the prophet, listen to me. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. 
It's not a valid answer. Can we know? Sometimes there's things that are hard to understand. Or there, some, there's, I'll guarantee you right now in First Corinthians, there are going to be things we're not sure about. Because it's a private letter, a personal letter, I should say, sent by Paul to the Corinthians. They asked him questions, but we don't know what they asked. We know they knew what he meant. Sometimes we have to find out what we can. But what we need to know is certainly here. Now, Jude 4 said, why did Paul, or why did Jude write this? Because certain men slipped in stealthily, and they were ungodly, and they were in error. They, they taught licentiousness. So let me cite this that I wrote in my notes. The believers had salvation through the finished work of Christ. And this was under attack. False teachers bring strange doctrine that was not given by Christ and his apostles. False teachings create sects. S-E-C-T-S. Personality cults. Adding new material to the faith. Or subtracting from the faith. The source of these distortions are teachers, not true apostles, who create their own set of followers. This has gone on throughout church history from day one. In fact, it was going on, as Jude points out, while the apostles were still alive. And so how is anyone going to find the righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Spirit, the faith, hope, and so on. It's by the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of every believer, being Bereans, searching the Scriptures to see what's true, and by walking by grace in what God has given us. Now let's show, as we go to Acts 20, that this was taught by Paul in the book of Acts, that we need to know the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, 26, 27 from the ESV. Therefore, I testify to you this day, Paul said, that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So at some point we'll get to this in Sunday school, but wow, what a statement. I'll give you a few things and we'll go, uh, that I know to be true. We'll talk about later in Sunday school, like three years from now. I don't know. But we'll get there in Acts. But look at this. I testify I'm innocent of the blood. That's an illusion. Jot this down. Ezekiel 3, 17 through 19. Ezekiel 3, 17 to 19. I won't read it. But it showed that if a prophet like Ezekiel was raised up by God, to proclaim God's word to Israel, in that case, to warn them of coming judgment and doesn't do so, their blood's on his head. But if he warns them and they don't listen, then their blood guiltiness is on their own. Now, how would that apply to what Paul said? Because Paul, in an allusion to Ezekiel 3, knew that he needed to tell 
them everything that God had chosen to reveal to the church through his apostles, Christ's apostles, so they would understand and know when to flee from wickedness, error, deception, and so on. So the illusion is Ezekiel 3, 17 and 19. How did Paul know he was innocent of the blood of all men? Because he had, in Ephesus, declared to them the whole counsel of God. I remember in 1986, a group I was with uh, called in a teacher. Actually, it was uh, Dave Hunt came and was warning. He had written a book called The Seduction of Christianity, and we wanted to get some things corrected. So he came in, and uh, he, he referenced this verse. And we were accused of dividing the body of Christ because we we're trying to find out what was true and what wasn't. And when he left, I remember the pastor, I was the assistant pastor, but we asked him, okay, what do we do now? And he said, well, I'll tell you what Paul said to the Ephesians. He wasn't claiming to be an apostle. I commend you to the Lord and to his word of grace. And then he left. Now we had him back, but... Here's what is important. I thought he was right to do that. I didn't understand it at the time. Here's why it's right. It's not sufficient to flee to another sect that claims to have it all right, join on a dotted line and don't ask any questions. I know a lot of people have done that, people I love and admire. I don't think it's a valid answer. Because... Now, rather than the, the word of his grace, the gospel of his grace, and the authority of scripture and the priest of every believer, now we'll go join this. But the problem started when we joined that. That's wrong, so we'll join this. No. Can we know what the Bible says? Can we gather under the means of grace? Can we trust God to sanctify us? And may we learn. I say yes. What God has chosen to reveal, this is my statement, is rarely popular but always necessary. And that's another poison. Well, we got to grow. We got to be popular. We got to be big. So I, I remember the purpose driven movement? Well, we're going to do that. Look at all the people. And so we'll misdefine the church so the church is an aggregation of religious consumers. And then we'll be big, and then we'll be influential, and some people will become Christian. But when you obscure the gospel, somebody might become Christian, but if you won't tell them repentance for forgiveness of sins, how will that happen? I personally asked Rick Warren that. And appealed to him to preach the gospel, but that wasn't on their agenda. I don't know if you can say what Paul said if you don't want to tell people that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against sin and that the only way out of that is repent and trust Christ alone and the blood atonement. If you don't want to say that, it doesn't matter how big you are, you're not helping anybody. Does that make sense? Any unity that is not grounded in the entire revealed purpose, counsel there 
Boule in the Greek means purpose, revealed purpose of God. There's other ways to say it. Any unity is not grounded in the entire revealed purpose of God is schismatic. It always is. So just keep going back to Scripture, and God will bring us along. And all the time we have the assurance. I don't want to go to another hospital bedside of a dear saint who's been dangled over the pit based on works. And what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? There's no hope. Now, somebody may feel that way, but we, we should have uh, a way to know that God is at work and our sins are forgiven and we die, we go to be with God in heaven. If evangelicals can't know that, who can? We don't want to give false assurance, but we don't want instability. Does anybody really believe that instability is a sign of the work of the Spirit? I don't believe that. Lack of assurance? I don't believe that. Some other ground besides the blood of Jesus that washed away our sins? I don't believe that. Paul was innocent because he taught the gospel and proclaimed God's revealed will. Let's go to the last slide here. Again, I'll cover this later in Acts. Perverted teachers will arise. This is predicted. Acts 20, 29 and 30. Here's what Paul said. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, this is the ESV, to draw away the disciples notice after them. What were they saying in Corinth? I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulus. Paul didn't create a schism. The people with their slogan did. I'm of Apollos. Paulus didn't create a schism. The people with the slogan did. Neither did Peter. Christ certainly isn't schismatic. One of the things that you can know about false teachers. Their disciples are disciples after them, even though they say it's after Christ. That's very serious. So these are disciples that are the false teachers. These teachers have specious claims. What's a specious claim? I think it's a very appropriate word. It seems plausible, but it's wrong. It seems appealing, but it's really wrong. It's the sort of claim that politicians often make. Well, that's another topic. But that'll help you understand it. And uh, that's as old as politics. That we're going to tell everybody, don't worry. What was the famous one in America? A chicken in every pot? That was before chicken was cheap. But whatever the case, specious claim. Perversions of the gospel. That's what it is. Now, what about the wolves? Jesus warned about wolves. Matthew seven fifteen, you can jot that down. Beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, insider ravenous wolves. Deceivers, this is my statement, and false teachers are ubiquitous. They create their own following. They cleverly devise schemes and contrive teachings that sound pious but are damnable 
heresy. A wolf in sheep's clothing looks, sounds, seems pious and Christian, but they'll damn you if you believe them. Well, how do I know? How do I know that's not me? Are they proclaiming the true person and work of Christ, the blood atonement, repentance for forgiveness of sins, the assurance of salvation for those who come to, come to Christ, and do they teach the whole counsel of God? And are they willing to be corrected or at least questioned if their doctrine doesn't line up with Scripture? And that's what we need to beware. 2 John 9, if you want to jot it down, I'll read it. 2 John 9, one chapter. And that, uh, one, excuse me, there's just one chapter. So verse 9 is 2 John 9. Everyone who goes too far does not remain in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. The one who remains, meno is the Greek, means stay put. The one who remains in the teaching, this person has both the Father and the Son. And so, wow, if we believe the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that Christ is who we claim to be, that his apostles appointed by him, We'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 15. Actually speak for God, Paul being the last. Then we have a basis and a ground to not go too far. Not go too far. And so that we will continue to explore next week. We'll continue through verse 17 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the issue of baptism comes up. And, you know, baptism is really important, but that's been as controversial throughout church history as anything. Isn't that amazing? But that's the case. It's been debated throughout church history. So let's close with prayer, and then we'll have the benediction. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy and grace. As we live in a world that's being torn apart, We live in a country that's being torn apart. We live in cities that are being torn apart. And there are lots of fears and sorrows. We know that. Lord, we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your confidence that we can know you and our sins are forgiven. That we can be stable and that we can encourage one another and help those who are faltering so that no one loses hope when, in fact, they've been given it by you through the gospel. Help us, Lord. And, Lord, if there are any here that do not know you, may they turn to you in faith and believe in the gospel. Thank you, Lord, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.